What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. I am your host, Rob Santos, joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And for this episode, which I forgot to look up the number for, I want to say it's 178, Drew and I are chugging along with the Gene Wolfe goodness. It's our seventh episode of coverage for the Book of the New Sun. I am still, still, pardon me, still reeling from the sheer literary girth for lack of a better term. And I am really looking forward to our weekly recap. Let's get this underway. Drew, my good friend of many long years, chapter 28 through 31 of The Shadow of the Torturer. What are we looking at? So this is chapter or uh, episode 180 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Wow, I had 178. What the hell is wrong with me? (laughs) Wow. Um, But yeah, so this week's reading in The Shadow of the Torturer covers the aftermath of Severian's duel with Agilus. Severian wakes up in the lazarette of a military base, with Dorcas asleep next to his bed and holding his belongings, including Terminus Est. Severian explores the base, where he learns that Agilus was arrested for the murders of many spectators after the duel, and also that Severian himself again nearly died and was brought to the lazarette on his last legs. Now that he's healed, he is expected to carry out Agilus's execution. Severian goes to speak with Agilus and finds Agia in the cell with her brother. They try to bargain with Severian, and Agia attempts to steal from Severian's Sabertash, but he eventually sends her off and walks Agilus through the ceremony of execution. Afterward, Severian meets with several, for lack of a better word, executioner groupies, people mm-hmm. obsessed with torture and death. He then joins Dorcas to walk around Nessus at night, buying her a new dress. When they return to their small room in the base, they have sex. The next day, Severian takes the stand to perform his first execution. He kills Agilus and hears Agia's scream from far off. Severian is then paid much more than he should have been and admits that he was sick after the execution. As they look for an inn after the ceremony, Dorcas asks to read the note Severian found at the Inn of Lost Loves. When he reaches into his sabertash to find it, he instead feels something altogether different. The claw of the conciliator itself which he realizes Agia must have stolen and then hidden on him. At that very moment, however, Dorcas exclaims over a vision in the sky. A tremendous building is hanging in the air above Nessus before it vanishes in a cascade of sparks. Oh, that ending. I cannot wait to talk about that ending once we start wrapping up this episode because uh, we have style to go into. And I have a particular style point that I want to uh, address. Okay. Um, it's time for me to fit, uh, fit. I can't speak at all today. Pardon me, everybody to admit my first official issue with Gene Wolfe's style. Okay. And let the record state before I say what it is that it's just a personal taste thing. I am not going to claim this is anything like poor writing far, you know, far beyond me. It would be to, <laughs> to claim this. I'm just saying this because Drew, I know how much of a Gene Wolfe fan you are. I've, like this is not a literary criticism. It's just me going. Ah, okay. oh, this particular quirk of style is driving me nuts. It's these f-ing commas. Okay, I'm it's sorry. Complex sentences. There are some sentences where I find myself going, "Okay, is this sentence going to end anytime soon?" Oh God, the sentence is still going. Oh, oh, that's a parenthetical note now, and he's mm-hmm. back into the same sentence again, and the sentence is still going. 
and it's still going. It's just it, it kind of pulls me out of the narrative a bit. Rob Santos, me, it pulls me out of the narrative a bit. That's all. So I have to give you an example. Obviously, um, a perfect example of this is the literal first paragraph of our reading for this week. So this is the opening of chapter twenty-eight. I'm going to read mm-hmm. this twice. First, I'm going to read as if I was like reading for an audiobook or something, which you know it'll sound natural spoken aloud. I'm going to go over it a second time after that, and I'm going to be pointing out the specific commas that are used. It'll sound terrible then, but I'm just trying to pick it apart for an in-depth literary analysis of something yeah. that isn't working for me, Rob Santos, as a style. Okay? Mm-hmm. Here we go. I woke the next morning in a lazare, a long, high-ceilinged room where we, the sick, the injured, lay upon narrow beds. I was naked, and for a long time, while sleep, or perhaps it was death, tugged at my eyelids, I moved my hands slowly over my body, searching it for injuries while I wondered, as I might have wondered of someone in a song, how I would live without clothing or money, how I should explain to Master Palaemon the loss of the sword and cloak he had given me. Now, pointing out the commas, I woke the next morning in a lazare, comma, a long comma, high-ceilinged room where we, comma, the sick, comma, the injured, comma, lay upon narrow beds. I was naked, comma, and for a long time, comma, while sleep, open parenthetical, or perhaps it was death, end parenthetical, tugged at my eyelids, comma, I moved my hands slowly over my body, comma, searching it for injuries while I wondered, comma, as I might have wondered of someone in a song, comma, how I would live without clothing or money, comma, how I should explain to Master Palaemon the loss of the sword and cloak he had given me. Now, I'm obviously not doing any favors to that passage by monotonously (laughs) reading comma at every such instance. I understand that I'm reading it there in a very obnoxious way that really exaggerates the point. But I also felt it was okay because reading it aloud kind of underplayed it since my own pauses dictatively could be misinterpreted. For anyone who's keeping track, that was two sentences containing 12 commas and a parenthetical. The first sentence has five commas the second sentence has seven commas and a parenthesis. So it's kind of pulling me out of the story. I have another example. Sorry, Drew, before you jump right on that. Another example where I had a problem with a comma in a different way. There was a comma that was used ambiguously, and it absolutely spoke to my proverbial wheel. Again, this was chapter 28, so we're still in a lot of the same uh, area here. I was worried about Dorcas, and their questioning, though it was clearly well-meant, had made me uneasy. This one's a lot easier to explain my difficulty with, since I can change my inflection when I'm reading it back. On first pass, that sentence read to me, I was worried about Dorcas and their questioning, though it was clearly well meant. So I thought the sentence was going to end there, but it followed with another comma and and had made me uneasy, which made me stop and go, oh, he switched subjects. He's no Mm -hmm. longer, the subject is no longer Dorcas. The subject of the continuing sentence is about their questioning. So what I thought was, I was worried about Dorcas and their questioning was actually, I was worried about Dorcas and their questioning, though clearly well meant, had made me uneasy. So his use of these commas, the complex ways in which he's uh, employing these commas, it's really throwing me for a loop. And when he's using them in such abundance, it's really just pulling me completely out of the nerve. I'm not, again, (laughs) it makes sense if you pull apart the paragraph if you pull apart sentence by sentence comma by comma there's no grammatical error anywhere of course this is gene wolf he's a master of the literary english language in its application 
But God, there, there are points where it's just, for me, Rob Santos, it's just getting monotonous to read. All right. Now that I've had my seven or eight minute opening rant, you may jump on that, Drew. The commas, how do you feel? That's a totally, totally valid opinion. Uh, This is one of the things that makes Wolf difficult to read, uh, is that he has these long, involved, twisting sentences. Oftentimes, it is difficult to figure out what exactly the sentence is saying. You know, Uh, and, and to be quite honest, this is... I don't think the book of the new sun is even the most difficult. I've talked before about peace. One of his other books that I think the, the sentences, the sentence structures in that are on a completely different level to the point where even though I've read probably the first 30 or 40 pages of that book several times, I barely remember anything that happened in it because I was spending all the time trying to figure out what the heck each sentence meant. Because they're so long. Like, you, you'll have, like, page-long yeah. sentences. Don't you think and, it does something to your experience as a reader just going yeah. into it for the first time? Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, and, of course, like you said, when you actually break it down, there's nothing grammatically incorrect about it. He's using all of this punctuation in the proper way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But that also ties into why he's using it. Like, he, he is specifically writing sentences like this to make you think, to make you puzzle out what is going on. Because uh, that's uh, that's kind of the conceit of the entire book of the New Sun, is that the world in this story is a puzzle, and he wants to challenge us as readers. He wants to make us work to figure out what he's telling us. And, you know, th- that's one of the reasons why this is lauded the way it is it's it is an altogether different kind of story and it's one that like neil gaiman said in his how to read gene wolf list you know it is one that is built to make us smart to make us smarter and that we have to go into it Mm -hmm. willing to learn and i i feel like you know you have gone into that willing to learn and I, and I totally understand why you're frustrated with some of this. I myself was frustrated. I, I continue to be frustrated with some of, uh, you know, like I've gotten used to it now because I've read this particular book. This is my the fifth time going through. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, but, but some of, I certainly haven't read everything by Gene Wolfe. And whenever I pick up a new Wolf story, I do find myself frustrated sometimes with just how complex he writes his stories. Hmm. Yeah. Like, like if I hadn't, I'm not going to lie. If I hadn't spent 180 plus episodes previously talking with you, Drew, going through the, the, the various neuroses of different authors and, 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 and comparing them, contrasting with one another. If I had picked this book up when I was 18, I would not have made it past chapter two, chapter three. Oh, yeah. I would not. Yeah. Absolutely. It really takes, <laughs> I think it honestly really takes uh, an acquired taste or at least an acquired appreciation of the literary arts for for a reader to fully appreciate what this book is because it's more of a puzzle than it is a story. Yeah, and like for a, some acquired readers, taste is a great way to put it. it. Yeah. You could make a great comparison between reading Gene Wolfe and drinking scotch. Scotch. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, was the, that was the example. That was the analogy I was going for. Uh, yeah. if, if you hadn't said that exactly. Yeah. It, it, I guess that, that does absolutely make sense. Um, 
Yeah, you put a glass of yeah. scotch in front of like a 16-year-old, they're going to drink it and be like, this is disgusting. What the heck did you just put in front of me? You know, <laughs> they're going to bounce right off of it. We went there, yeah. And, and For, similarly, well, if you put an unprepared reader in front of Gene Wolfe, they're probably going to bounce off of it. They're going to say, what the heck is this? This is you a know? very, very stark contrast with Brandon Sanderson, who I'm not yeah. listening to audiobooks for for the past few days now. I've been going back into uh, the Stormlight Archive just to pass time at work since it's been a while since I've, I've read The uh, the Way of Kings. And of course, I'm uh, going through Arcanum Unbounded for Secret History so I can do a Worldhoppers episode later this month. Yeah. And so I've been, I've been in a lot of Brandon Sanderson again this month. And then going into Gene Wolfe is just going from chihuahuas to tyrannosaurus rex it's like <laughs> oh my god not not to downplay brandon sanderson's talent of course he has he's, a whole he is a perfectly competent writer he is yeah i mean we've, we've talked a long yeah. a long time about you know about how why he's our favorite author but like like yeah just with gene wolf here it's a completely different beast it, it there's n- almost nothing similar but um because of that it's perfect subject material for the inking out loud podcast i feel and i'm glad that we waited until this point in the podcast, almost 200 episodes in for us to appropriately try, or I should say attempt to unpack everything that's involved here. Yeah. Because for both of ourselves as writers, the sorts of stories we write generally are more in line with the Brandon Sanderson esque kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Yep. Certainly for myself, the novel length works that I have done are in that wheel of time, Cosmere, you know, vein. Uh, I think some of my short fiction is more. Um, I I allow myself more leeway to write puzzles. Uh, I, yeah. I was just talking yeah. on on Discord in our Patreon channel um, with one of our patrons who was going through and reading some of our short fiction about how I feel some of my older stories, I may have kind of hidden what's going on too well because of all the people who've read them, nobody's really gotten them. Uh, and and it, it makes me wonder, you know, with Wolf, did he have that feeling as well? With Because his short fiction, I mean, we've read The Hero is Werewolf, which is, I think, one of his more approachable uh, yeah. works. But even that, you know, you read it the first time, you're like, well, what is going on here? And and I have to wonder how many short stories Wolf wrote that he went through his life thinking nobody has gotten this. And and I'm mm-hmm. I'm not saying that like my short stories are as good as Gene Wolf's short stories, but, no, no, uh, but I do occasionally feeling, I imagine. enjoy writing. Yeah, like I, I enjoy writing a story that I want the reader to work at. I don't want to just hand it to you. I, I, I put clues in there and, and at, at a certain level, I do want readers to get to the end of the story and think, wait, what? And, and, and then hopefully they want to reread it to figure out what happened, mm. you know, and that's what Wolf is, is good at, you know, it, again, going back to Gaiman's how to read Gene Wolf, he says, you know, reread. The story's better the second time, and it'll be even better the third time because you'll start figuring out what's going on to, on, on a deeper level. It's not just the surface, oh, character A went from point X to point right. Z. Which and can feel rigid in some yeah. ways for some readers. Um, and 
And when you reread the book of the new sun or you reread peace or you reread soldier in the mist or whatever, you're going to have a different perspective on it the second time through, because you will have the context of the greater whole and you'll, you'll be able to pick up on the clues, the puzzle pieces that he seeded throughout the story. Mm -hmm. I love that we got all the way on this tangent about my complaining, my ranting about his use of commas. <laughs> but it, it all ties yeah. together. You know, that's the thing. It does. It's, that's what I appreciate about There's this, so much that... purpose to Wolf's stories that it's hard to approach something in isolation. And it's absolutely valid, I feel like, to, to approach a story like this, even with somebody who's got, like, I, I like to think I've got a lot of experience now in, in the sci-fi and fantasy yeah. landscape, and I'm still absolutely flabbergasted, and I'm absolutely confused and <laughs> and angry over my confusion of what I'm reading, <laughs> confusion about what I'm reading. So it's, it's, I feel like I'm getting the appropriate response, which is good. It makes me feel a little bit better because reading this book, I was just shaking my head going, how am I going to talk about this in a, some, even a remotely literary level? Like, oh my God, this the is girth, how? for lack of a better term. I, I specifically chose that one. I just, I can't, I can't handle it yet, but I'm but, working on it. Working this on is it. how to discuss it in a, in a literary fashion. You know, you're, yeah. you're breaking down the elements of the language and the mm. elements of his style that will expose making all my difficulties and i will hope that there are others out there listening to this who have the same difficulties or similar difficulties and can level with me so i'm there yeah. with you anybody <laughs> this is hard you are definitely not alone <laughs> <laughs> any other style points because that was actually my only style point but i'm assuming you have maybe one or two or should we just go into our character or our language it's up to you man what do you got so I want to talk chapter titles a little bit here. Okay. Because I, I, I think, I, oh, I never I, remember to write them down. Yeah. I think in many ways, the chapter titles here are the most straightforward in the book. Uh, this, this segment in general, uh, this is one of the reasons that I put these four chapters together and didn't, you know, extend it another chapter or, or two. Um, the chapter titles are Carnifex, Agilus, Knight, and the Shadow of the, the Torturer. Yeah. And I, I feel like Agilus and Knight especially are... It's tough to really approach those and say, there's clearly a deeper double meaning here. Agilus is the character. He, mm -hmm. Severian, goes and talks with Agilus in this chapter. Uh, it's, it's not a character name that has a, a second meaning as a regular word or anything. It's, it's pretty straightforward. And then night, of course, this is just what Severian does on this particular night before the, before the execution. And Carnifex, you know, it, it's, again, this is Severian for the first time being thrust into the role of Carnifex. But then we get the Shadow of the Torturer. The namesake of the book. And yeah, this is the one that, like, demands that you pause and consider it. Because it's the, you know, the title of the volume. And I don't know, like, what did you think about that when you turned the page and saw that chapter title? It was time to pull out the microscope. That was what I felt when I read that title. And I, okay, the, the, that dawn of recognition, that moment of, okay, where is it going to be in this chapter that I can link that to the book title? And there was that moment when Severian was. was 
raising his sword high. I, I forget, did he actually use Terminus S to accomplish the deed? He yes, did. he did. And there was that shadow. He made note to point out that the shadow blocked out the sun forever. I think it was for yeah. Agilus specifically. He, he, uh, when he checked out the scaffold, the stand, before mm-hmm. the execution, he like adjusted the block so that oh, it, would right. so it would be where his shadow falls. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so you have the literal shadow of the torturer right there. But, you know, this is Gene Wolfe. There has to be more to it than that. And I I still kind of wrestle with that in this chapter, even multiple rereads later. There's there's kind of the, I think, the more obvious secondary meaning. Uh, that being that, like, this is a chapter that demonstrates Severian's quote-unquote shadow, the way his life is affecting those mm-hmm. of the people around him that he has just dramatically altered the course of Agia's life by killing her brother and, and setting her on a, a path of anger and resentment towards Severian. Uh, and, and also this is a chapter that shows an impact he's having on Dorcas. You know, they, they go off together at the end of this chapter. They're, they're, that's the D and D party now. That's the adventuring party is yeah. Severian and Dorcas. And while Severian has had other people like pop up here and there, like like with Hildegrin or Agilus or Agia, uh, they're they're all gone for the time being. Agilus permanently, uh, and and now Severian is like Dorcas's whole life. She still doesn't remember anything from before the water. And she talks during the, the previous chapter about uh, when Severian offered to buy her a dress. And she said, I didn't want you to buy me a dress because it would have reminded me of that horrible day. It would have reminded me of the day you were going to die. But you survived. Now you can buy me a dress and I'll be happy for it because it will remind me of the day you lived. And so her whole life at this point is revolving around Severian. So his shadow is falling heavily on Dorcas's life just as it has fallen heavily on Agia's life. Yeah. Yeah. But lots to uh, consider there. Yeah. Do, do you feel like there is any, any further meaning? Cause I feel like there needs to be it. it like it's wolf. You don't just, if there's further you know, meaning, I assume I would get this on a reread. Yeah. I like not, not, not to sound like, oh, I feel like I got everything I was supposed to at this point, because there could very well be a lot of things hidden that I could have picked up on were I a more astute reader. Um, but for me, it was raising the sword, blocking the sun. It was positioning himself that so that such that his shadow would fall over the block. That was, for me, enough to continue forward. And I was trusting in that, perhaps, because this is the namesake of the book, a reread will give me a third layer or a fourth sure. layer or a fifth layer with this kind of writer. Um, yeah. but I, I, I definitely wasn't uh, searching for anything beyond what I had already gleaned at this point. Yeah. So the only other thing that stands out to me uh, in this chapter that could apply to the title of it is the fact that Severian discovers he has the Claw of the Conciliator. And when he pulls it out, it glows. It's bright. And he immediately stuffs it back mm. to hide it. He puts it back in the shadows. 
where were we? So, yeah, where were we? Uh, so, right, the Claw of the Conciliator. This is the yes. the biggest revelation in these chapters. Uh, but when Severian pulls it out, it glows, and he stuffs it back in his Sabertash, putting it back in the shadows. And, and that is another, perhaps, indicator of... And, and oh. you could argue that there are layers of significance to that as well, but that's something that I don't want to really get into right now because this is a first read for you. Right. That would be preemptive. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that was really my only big style thing for this, this part of the book. Interesting. Shall we head into our language portion? Yes, we shall. Oh boy. Okay. Okay. I have, let me count here, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 new words that I learned across four chapters for this week. So, oh boy. yeah, let's get right into it. Number one, Sinocephalus. <laughs> A dog-headed being. This is C-Y-N-O-C-E-P-H-A-L-U-S. A dog-headed being. One of a fabled race of dog-headed men. That's, that's what I got. So, I have always pictured this, uh, this particular creature, like um, the ancient, the myriad ancient Egyptian gods who have the dog heads. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I see them right here on the Google return down there. Or yeah, jackals. that's yeah, that's always been my uh, my kind of headcanon for this. I cannot remember if I have stated this one before, so I wrote it down again just in case. Dimarchi, D I M A R C H I. Demarchi, Demarchi. Demarchi. I I pronounce it Demarchi, especially because there is a uh, the pl- plural of it is Demarchii. So Demarchii mm. would be weird. I think I like Demarchii or Demarchii versus Demarchii. Yeah. A long robe open in front with narrow sleeves worn traditionally by the Turks. Uh, That's what I got here. Or the uniform jacket of a hussar worn like a cape. What about what, what you? Interesting. So the historical definition of a Demarchi, uh, the translation is literally those who fight two ways. And they oh. were dragoons formed by Alexander the Great, trained to act as infantry and cavalry both. And that typically meant they would uh, ride while traveling so they could move quickly and then they would dismount to fight. I'm just now noticing, though, that my first two Google uh, sorry Google returns on Dimarchi were Wolf Wiki and Reddit, a few questions about Shadow of the Torturer. <laughs> so these are... Wow. Um, yeah. Obscure words, Wolf Wiki. Um, they gave, they yes. returned me for those ones, from, from the ones. I, or, or number three, I didn't read this one, a kind of mantle with a cape-like appendage instead of sleeves. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. So, so that's the historical meaning is, is basically like cavalry and infantry, men trained to do both. Um, it can also be used in contemporary military to Talk about mechanized infantry. Uh, yeah, that may be where I've already heard it then. And then, uh, but in in the context of the series, what the Demarchi are, are both, they're trained as soldiers, as frontline troops, and they serve as police. So they, again, they have that train two ways thing. 
It's like military police then. No, no, no. Military police actually police specifically with their jurisdiction inside the military. That's actually not yeah. a good analogy. Um, okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is uh, a my next... super common word that, that DeMarkey are all over this series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my next one, of course, again, comes from Wolf Wiki Obscure Words and Reddit a few questions about Shadow of the Torchware. <laughs> Zenagi or oh, Zenagi. Zenagi. Oh, yeah. I like the way that's pronounced there. X-E-N-A-G-I-E. Xenogy. Also has been defined, according to Wolf Wiki, as a song or instrumental. It, it trails off there with ellipses. Um, what? Or a cavalry unit of about 500 men. Yeah. This, is, this is on the Reddit return for Gene Wolf. A few questions. Yeah, Xenogy is a, a, a cavalry troop. Xenogy. I don't. I oh, wonder Lord. where Wolf Wiki's getting that. Was it a yeah. song? Yeah, let me follow this one down the rabbit hole here. Obscure words. ACs, Asian, Abaddon, Abaya. Oh, what the hell is... Oh, this is just leading me to a, a general page starting alphabetically. Nope. Actually, I can just <laughs> find Xenogy here. One second, one second. Let me go down to the X's. This will be That's easy. That's very interesting. Okay, down here. It doesn't even list Xenogy. What use are you, WolfWiki? Why are you returning for me on this? Yeah. Uh, Sorry. When I Googled it years ago, I, I returned the cavalry unit thing. And also the lexicon Earthus has a cavalry unit of about 500 men or a Demarchy unit of 1000 men. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with Reddit on this one. Gene Wolf comments. Yeah. Uh, by the user. You, I mean, cool based by, ever. you know, based on ever. the context <laughs> that it's used in this book, clearly it is referring to the company of soldiers who stay yeah. in this base. You know what I need to do? I need to start guessing what words mean based on context in my writing down of these words before actually looking them up later and defining them. Because I have this habit of coming across an alien word, writing it down with no context around it, just the word in my notes, and then searching yeah. it later, and then having a completely erroneous context involved. Yeah, like so the first I'm time gonna... it's used is, it says, uh, you know, a residential enclave of city armatures and the barracks and stables of the Xenogy of the Blue Demarchy. Like, clearly it's talking about a company of soldiers. <laughs> the Xenogy of the Blue Demarchy is clearly talking about soldiers. Wait, the barracks and the so. stables the of subject. them? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But, I don't know, you could go on, on uh, you could switch subject and, and talk about anything after that just because the subject started with it. I, I can see exactly what you're saying and how I, I probably would have guessed the exact same thing. Going forward, making this promise, starting at episode 8 of our coverage of the Book of the New Sun, I'm going to start each and every one of my uh, language, my new words learned, with what I thought it was through context. And then I'll yeah. see how close I was. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the next one, you know, is the soldier talking about how they rotate through the front lines and, like, the camp followers and women. And he says, you know, like, Severian asks why the women don't come back with them, and, and he's like... You know, they would prefer it, but how would they do it? You know, it's one thing to fo follow cavalry fighting on their way, but they wouldn't keep up when we're traveling back. We could do 15 leagues a day. And mm. he says, it's better for them to wait. If a new Xenogy comes to our old sector, they'll have some new men. Like, clearly. Yeah, again, okay. That would have been the moment where I went, oh. Yeah. Okay. And then um, a, a the next one is, that was followed by a lengthy discussion with a non-commissioned officer of the Xenogy. So, uh, yeah, would yeah. have been there. Chiliarch, 
Yeah. Again, officer. C-H-I-L-I-A-R-C-H. Military officer. The commander of a thousand men, traditionally from ancient Greece. Chiliarch. I love that word. Now, my next one is is a bit of a... It's it's odd. Because either the... uh, The book got it wrong in terms of the ebook translation. uh, The port to ebook misspelled it. Or it's just so goddamn obscure that Google can't find it. So this is Brachimar. B-R-A-Q-U-E-M-A-R. Which is how it arrives in the ebook. Nothing returned uh, on Google. A 16th century sword with a simple guard and a wide, short, double-edged right. blade. Which is a Brachimard with a D at the end of it, yes? Uh... That's Brekamar without the D is in Lexicon Earthus with that. Oh, it may be just it's an alternative nowhere on spelling. Yeah, it may be an it's alternative absolutely spelling. Absolutely nowhere on Google. I keep getting, I, I, I hit Brekamar and it just keeps returning as Brekamar. There is nothing Brekamar <laughs> anywhere on Google. Yeah, it's probably just an alternative spelling. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Horn Seti. S-E-T-T-E-E. Apparently that's a kind of furniture? Oh, yeah. Manufactured completely by shed antlers or pieces of furniture, such as example cabinets, which are yada, yada, yada. Uh, furniture. Horn furniture. Settee. I've never heard settee before. Yeah. That's... I've I've definitely seen it elsewhere. Uh, and yeah, it's a... Yeah, just kind of furniture. <laughs> Portrieve. I don't know oh, if that was... Portrieve. Yeah, yeah, included recently. P-O-R-T-R-E-E-V-E. Title of a historical official in England and Wales possessing authority. Uh, bailiff or mayor charged with keeping yeah. the peace and other duties in a port or market borough of early England. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, new word. Uh, Simar. We're not even halfway through my new words, everybody. Simar. Oh, through the, these. the dress. Yeah, it's a kind of dress. Okay. Um if I remember yes. right, it's it's sort of like um, not exactly the same, but sort of like a kimono. Like it's something that you wrap around yourself. You are very, very dead on with that. Yes. A woman's okay, cool. long dress or robe, also light covering a scarf. Yeah. So the yeah. wrap right there is where you nailed it. Yeah. Uh, a feminine wrap sort of clothing. Yes. Cool. Cool. Um, all right. A-U-R-E-A-T-E. Oriate. Oriate. Oh, Oriate. Oh, yes. So this is... uh, Yeah, there's a couple of different versions of this root word used in that chapter, which is something that I'm... I was going to bring up when we talk about uh, Agilis and Agia. Um, A-U, yeah. Oh! (gasps) Yeah, so it comes from the same root as like uh, Aurora or Oriole. Um, It's basically like a halo. Yeah, well, denoting, made of, or having the color of gold. A-U, that makes sense. And with Agia and Agilis, A-G being silver. Yeah. Interesting. Ooh, interesting. Yep. interesting. Very interesting. Oh, my goodness. Uh, propinquity. Propinquity. That's a super That's fun my word. most difficult to uh, pronounce one this week, I think. Propinquity. The state of being close to someone or something. 
semicolon proximity yeah. or close kinship. Propinquity. That's a super fun word to say. <laughs> P-R-O-P-I-N-Q-U-I-T-Y. I hate pronouncing that. Uh, Paracoita. <laughs> oh, boy. All of my returns on this were Gene Wolfe and the Book of the New Vocabulary. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, you're getting yeah. into Heather's... Uh... <laughs> Uh, Heather's little um, uh, monologue there. Oh, yeah. Okay, Heather. Oh, do we actually get a name for him? Oh, oh, we may not have gotten his name yet. Oh, because I'm looking yeah. at this. Is Heather something? Spoilers. Reddit. What? Okay, so Heather is his name. H e t h o r. H e t h o r. Yes. Uh, I texted you, Heather. Drew. I'm going to read the text that I sent to you about Heather <laughs> yesterday. Yesterday, <laughs> I said. Pardon me, you're going to have to censor this later. What the f*** is going on with this guy speaking <laughs> gibberish? And with the fortress in the sky that vanishes, like, what the f***? This is getting weird. Uh. So, that was my reaction to Drew, just on text for her. So, a paracoita <laughs> is the female partner in sexual intercourse, and the male partner is uh-huh. the paracoitus. Which is where, oh. you know, coitus. That's nice. Coita, and coitus. It, it fits, yeah. it fits uh, thematically with my next word as well genicon uh, yep. yep and i got this one i guess from urban dictionary a much fantasized about sexual partner envisioned during sexual activity that assists one in facilitating orgasmic pleasure with their regular partner yep g-e-n-i-c-o-n genicon so new words uh, everywhere is your new next one scopologna you guessed it yeah you were, we're in that paragraph scopolanya um, which uh, doesn't return anything at all it is a hard okay key. scopolagna scopolagna yeah it's not like baloney with a it, it soft is g? not yeah it is oh, it is okay. a hard g okay because um, google keeps asking me did you mean scopalamine <laughs> Interesting. I don't know. Did I mean scopalamine, uh, scopalamine, which is a poisonous plant alkaloid used as antimetic in motion sickness and as a preoperative medication for examination of the eye? Surely I don't mean that, do I? I didn't check the, the context. So I just wrote it down. This is um, a... See if I can like describe this right. This is a noun construction of of a real word that is, or no, that that's, it's not exactly right. Like it's, so there's a real word called scopolagnia, which is the pleasure gained from voyeurism. And this what? is like a, a like concrete physical object version of that. So basically all of these words that Heather are using are talking about, like he, he had a sex doll and that's somebody stole his sex to. doll. Yeah. Somebody stole his his living fleshlight, apparently. Yeah. So. Yeah. That is weird. But I, I assumed I was reading that too literally and that there's a greater metaphorical meaning that I'm just not clever enough to appreciate. So No, no, but he's Heather's very specifically okay. talking about a sex doll. All right. Great place for him to be doing that. I, honestly, when you referred to this um torturer groupie group. Yeah. I kind of had a moment of surprise because I was like, oh, I thought these were simply um, the relatives of those Agilus slaughtered with his own flower on his way out when he was escaping. And they're just here to, like, get their extra, yeah, revenge or avenge no. my 
relative. These are just groupies. Yeah, I mean, Severian I talks about it. He talks about them in honestly pretty um, like derogatory terms. I got uh, that. Yeah, so they came eagerly yet hesitantly, afraid of being repulsed and determined to make the advance. Blah 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 blah. Let's see if I can find this. Uh, I'm a little disappointed. Just like the that, way honestly. he describes them, he like one of the women he says had the hungriest eyes he had ever. The hungriest seen. eyes. I, I was going to make a style point about the fact that for some reason he's so great at explaining and stylizing everybody else, but the only descriptor he gives this woman is the hungriest eyes he's ever seen. Yeah. There's something and, so fascinating about that. Yeah. And he describes another, uh, another woman as like, she, she like has this desire to touch him and he's repelled because he feels like he's uh, going to fall play to quote, some blood drinking ghost, a succubus or Lamia. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they're all like, yeah, they're, they're like sadists and, and they get off on mm. like, that's, that's Damn. why they asked to like get blood on her handkerchief. Oh, and, I thought she need, uh, she was like a sorceress who needed this for a ritual and she's just taking the opportunity or something like that. Like, damn. Yeah. There's, I read far too much into what this is actually is a lot simpler. I thought, oh man, I thought, okay, these are the relatives of the people that Agilus murdered and this is going to introduce for Severian another multi-dimensional conflict that he has with you know other people worshipping him for take for what they interpret as avenging their their fallen you know because people who Severian's going to be executing performing his duty for are going to be are going to be murderers are going to be rapists you know are going to be molesters and so there's going to be people who are always cheering him on who are personally involved with the conflict that he's supposedly resolving there. And so I was so excited for this extra layer of his character, <laughs> but these are just groupies. These are just people who get off on torture. Yeah. Ah, Oh no, I was not ready for that. And I don't want that. Ah, yeah. Like he says, I was able to pretend I did not know what they were. They might have been at a party all a little drunk, you know, like if, if they were the family of, victims why would he have to pretend he didn't know what they were because he it would interfere with his professionalism he's I not the like. one being a judge not a judge in, in in execution of his duty in fact that the person with whom he's executing their suffering for lack of a better term is is directly dependent on his skill and he could just like miss the blade he could hack their head off make it a blunt edge and stuff like that i thought that was no, how no. he was interpreting it mm. okay and I yeah, thought the like, woman who wanted the extra blood was just like a sorceress who's like, hey, I could use this for an extra part of my recipes and I'll, I'll pay you extra for this because I'm taking advantage of this moment. I read far too much into this. Okay. All yeah, right. the, that's that's why they're like, you know, how does it feel? How does it feel to kill someone? How does it – have you ever killed a woman before? Yeah, I thought they wanted that much closure. Like, it's like, I wish I could do that myself. Wh- why, you know? why would they ask, have you ever killed a woman before? Like that, that would be a total non sector. No, like they, oh, these are, creepy. these are people who I are sadists oh, and who no, are just getting said, off yes, on the violence. Yeah. Oh man. That's so yeah. disturbing. Okay. Uh, my next, since we're still in language, Lemans, L E M A N S, which just returned on Google layman, an alternative spelling of alternative spelling of layman. Um, no, in fact, I think we talked about this word in the acts of Cain as well. It's what? like, yeah, um, Toasitel, I think, calls Bairn Milecos Lehman 
it's it's like a, a derogatory no. term for like uh, a mistress. Oh, doesn't he call him? Um, he uh, also ca- uh, he also calls him a catamite. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, that was one I remember learning there. Going, oof. Uh, there's another one, man. I I'm trying to remember what the what the full quote is. There's somebody accuses somebody else of being like so and so's Lehman, and and they're like, wait, what the heck? No, uh, man, what is that from? Oh, not uh, not Stover. It might be Stover, but I kind of feel like it was something else. I don't know. I can't remember. But but we've we've definitely talked about this word before on on the mm. podcast. Yeah, I don't recall it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Yeah the the lexicon has Lehman listed as a lover or a sweetheart, a kept woman. Mm. Okay. That's a, that a more generous definition than. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, this actually, I take back what I said earlier about one of the words. Uh, this may be the most difficult to pronounce. This is C-A-N-G-U-E, which I want to say is Kanga or Kangyu. Uh, I want to say Kangyu. Or Kang, even. Um, let's see if, if this has an actual definition for this here. Uh, I have this on Merriam-Webster. I have a definition, but who knows? Or, or, or a, a pronunciation, rather. Oh, the kangyus, yoke for oxen, porter's yoke, or wooden collars having holes for the neck and hands. So like a stock. It does okay. not have a pronunciation. Yeah, I have this on, uh, people also ask on Google, uh, what is the meaning of kangyu? Definition of kangyu, entry one of two. A large, flat, square, or rectangular device that was formerly used in some Asian countries like a portable pillory for confining the neck and sometimes also the hands as punishment. So dictionary.com has it pronounced Kang. Oh, sweet. That's how I just did the last one. Sweet. From French, from the Portuguese Kanga. <laughs> I'm French. I have, I speak French and I'm also ethnically Portuguese. So I guess that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. There you go. All right. A bassination, which is, I yeah. think my favorite word oh, it's for like, this week. This is a good one. Or again from, uh, Yeah. Well, yeah, a defenestration, a I think, is uh, a little more common of a word these days. But mm. Abassination is a form of corporal punishment or torture in which the victim is blinded by having a red-hot metal plate held before their eyes. Which yeah. is very, <laughs> very appropriate for me as a long-time <laughs> welder of 11 years because the number of times in which I have had welder's flash resulting from ionizing radiation exposure and infrared radiation exposure is uncountable. So <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, do not envy those with uh, the, the torture of a vaccination. That's horrible. No. Yeah. Um, Take it from me. That feels like waking up in the middle of the night and somebody has dumped sand in your eyeballs and they've also replaced your eyelids with sandpaper so that every time you blink you are scratching your eyes and it fucking sucks sorry but that does not the sound welder fun. and me really reacted to that uh let's see here defenestration i just teased this one d-e-f-e-n-e-s-t-r-a-t-i-o-n 
defenestration. The action of throwing someone out of a window, which I found hilarious. Uh, yes. Or informal, the action of dismissing someone from position of power or authority. But I like the first. So, Estropod. Or Estropade. Okay. E-S-T-R-A-P-A-D-E. Strapado, a torture or punishment technique where the victim is tied at a pole which is dropped from a considerable height to just above the soil aboard a ellipses. This confused me a little bit. How about Uh, we check the lexicon Earthus? Yeah, so Estropade, uh, the lexicon has it as a torture consisting of attaching a person's hands and feet to a rope, drawing him up by them to a great height, and then letting him fall suddenly. Sounds like fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Victualler. Victualler. V-I-C-T-U-A-L-E-R. Although I think in the book it had a double L. Uh, I think it did have a double L. That sounds right. Um, I, without even getting to it in the lexicon, I it's somebody who sells drinks. Yeah, Victuals. a person who is licensed to sell alcoholic liquor. From the British. Yeah, in fact, it doesn't even have it in the lexicon Earthus. Mm. Apparently, it is too common a word for Michael Andre Driussi to bother with. <laughs> Got you. Got you. My only other one was uh, Sumpter, Baggage Sumpter, which turns out to be a pack horse, mule, or other beast of burden. Yes. Sumpter. Yep. So that's it. That wraps up the 20 new words that I learned. <laughs> As the majority mm. of part of this episode for the, the majority of, of which came from seven. our new friend, Heather. Yes. Oh, my goodness, Heather. So, all right. Now that we are through language, any other language points or shall we go into our characters? Yeah, let's go right into characters. We're already running kind of long, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's so. talk about Agia and Agilus real quick. Ooh. So obviously we get like everything laid out and explained in this section. You know, they, they talk about how when Severian refused to sell the sword, uh, Agia, they had a signal and Agia went out and got in the costume and challenged him. And then, you know, uh, yeah. and they reveal why this, this blade was made by a master bladesmith named Jovinian. And it was worth like 10 times their entire shop. And, uh, and they were just like, yeah, we we got to do this. They have done this uh, like dual murder thing before, but never with something this valuable. Uh, and of course, the revelation here that Agia, when they crashed into the altar in the Cathedral of the Pelerines in the big tent cathedral, uh, the reason they were searching them was that she did indeed steal the claw of the conciliator, but she hid it on Severian without telling him. So when they without did their little him. truth sense on Severian, he didn't take anything. He had no idea. So he passed and then they, they did the truth sense on Agia saw that she did steal it, strip searched her and couldn't find it. So they were like, Hmm, I guess we got to let them go. And Agia is thinking the whole time. Well, I can just get it from his saber tash after Agilus kills him, you know? Yeah. And then and of that course, she tries to the, steal yeah. what, what she tried to do. The noise he heard slapping away her hand, all the suspicion he had that was misdirected because of his, um, his limited knowledge. Yeah. Yep. Explained a lot. Yeah, for sure. 
But there is something, well, a couple of interesting things that come out of this scene, kind of revelations about the characters of Agia and Agilus. First off, it is heavily implied here that not only are they brother and sister, but probably twins and they're lovers. Uh, that she's like naked on top of him when Severian walks in and and she like stops Severian before he can even comment on it. And she's like, Every, everything you're thinking is the truth. I oh, admit it. I somehow you missed know? that. And, I, I found uh, it very weird that she was willing to fornicate with Severian, just tell her brother to turn around. Yeah. That uh, was the that was the height of the weird for me. I somehow yeah. missed the detail that she was on top of him when Severian entered. Yes. Uh, oh, let me, no. oh no, girl. Oh. Uh, let me find the quote this girl here. Girl's just turning out to be more and more disturbed as we go along. Um. Inside, a naked man lay upon straw. A chain ran from the iron collar about his neck to the wall. A woman, naked too, bent over him, her long brown hair falling past her face and his so that it seemed to unite them. Lots of sex imagery there. Yep. No, no. Definitely a lot there that I somehow (laughs) glossed over and I'm glad that I did and I'm very regretful that I decided to (laughs) dig in depth on. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Um, So so the really interesting thing going back to the the Orient, right? It's used mm. to describe um, uh, there was a tiny window high up in the wall behind them and from it suddenly, as though the ridge of a roof or a cloud had now fallen below the sun, a beam of light came to bathe them both. I looked from one Orient face to the other. And so this is a really, really interesting thing because when you think about symbolism, you would imagine that characters who have this sort of description of light falling upon them would come in a moment of cleansing or, or a moment of revelation of purity, but instead it's the complete opposite. And so Severian here is describing them at their most base, at their most guilty in this Orient light. Denoting made of or having the color of gold. Yeah. Huh. And and there's another point later um, in the chapter that I'm trying to find where he uses a similar word. Uh, I don't I don't remember. I can't find it. Just like flipping through really fast. But it's again, it's like a description of the light falling, and it and it's almost like a halo, and and the word he uses is a, uh, I think it's aureole, and that's the like technical term for when you look at old like Renaissance era paintings of Catholic saints, they have a halo, you know, like a gold halo around their head. Yeah, and yeah. That's yeah. called an aureole. Oh. Gene Wolfe is so good at describing the light falling upon things. Uh, Yes, here it is. He stared at his hands, slender and rather soft, where they lay in the narrow beam of sunlight that had given his head and Agia's an aureole a few moments before. So, like, Severian is using, like, saint-like imagery to talk about Agia and Agilus, which is extraordinarily strange. Saint-like imagery, assuming you followed it down the rabbit hole, which is another layer of appreciation that I have for this. God. This this brings to mind the introduction in the description of Dr. Talos. 
uh, where yeah. again we had the light falling upon his face in a very specific way that and completely... he uses the shadows to make expressions yes. appear to move across his mm. face but yeah so sticking on this idea though i think this is one of the ways that wolf shows severian's complicated relationship with agia where obviously he's horny as all hell when he first meets her and he spends a whole day like panting after her but then rejecting her when she makes advances and again in the scene she makes an advance upon him and he rejects her but even at this stage where he he knows she has wronged him he knows she is his enemy he still has this love almost for agia and i think that's part of why he's using these terms when describing them like it it shows that Severian is not necessarily a person of absolutes, even though he's, which is a problem for him. You know, like he's in a profession that kind of demands absolutes. Like they are either guilty or they yeah, are not guilty. That's a very good point. Yeah. But his interactions with pretty much everybody he encounters here belies that duality in his life. Mm. Yes. Interesting. Um, shall we talk on? Let, let's let's get into Severian and Dorcas, or anything else about? Yeah, Agilus? yeah. Let's talk Severian and Dorcas. Agilus. Okay, with Severian, he's let's let's do my weekly check in. Yeah, he's not entirely unredeemable. There okay. are moments in this passage where I, I I had an honest moment of, oh, that is empathetic, that is human. Mm-hmm. Even aside from tradition, I. The fact that he follows through, that, that makes sense. I A lot of it, I think, stems from, and I can't remember the exact points, when he's talking about how his guild treats the deceased or, or, or treats their subjects, like like, like yeah. um, the subjects of their focus and, and how they, you know, don't lift the head by the hair, how they strike it a certain way, all these things. I was like, okay, there is a measure of humanity in there. There is definitely a measure of questioning suffering and easing of passing and respectful or, or just respect of humanity and dignity that that is involved there and the fact that he is this far removed from everything he has been expected to follow through with and he still keeps to that he's not yeah. unredeemable which pisses me off because he is so <laughs> i don't know what else like he has for me as a character for the past you know six seven episodes it's it's been mostly negative for the vast majority negative in that I just. Well, and, and he finally got laid. So he's less horny now. Mm, yeah. He's, <laughs> he's significantly less horny now. Um, uh, but, but no, going back to the, the kind of these ritual around the body, humanity. this is another kind of instance showing the, the way the torturers are supposed to be this institution of absolutes, but has these, almost contradictions within them. Uh, This whole thing is describing, as you said, like a dignified attitude toward the body, but the language Severian uses is almost callous at some points. He says, as soon as the head has been exhibited to the crowd, it can be dropped back into the basket. Like that's, that's incredibly callous, you know, Mm -hmm. but then the headless body must be taken away in a manner dignified yet dishonorable. Yeah, as an oxymoron, that that yeah. made me stop and go, huh? 
and that it must that? be taken away and not just taken away, but taken to some specific spot where it will be safe from molestation. Mm-hmm. And, and so on the surface, this makes sense. Like, you know, if there's an angry crowd, they would, they may want to mutilate the body or, you know, perform some other kind of just awful desecration. But if we remember uh, his conversation with Master Ultan, we get another reference to this. The Eaters of the Dead. Mm-hmm. If you recall that there is a conversation they, they have, you know, where he talks about how people will eat dead bodies and somehow like experience the lives of those dead people through the eating of them. And, and he doesn't really, he doesn't really go into detail, but he does, you know, flesh and gaining memory was very, very reminiscent. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we get another reference to the eaters of the dead here. Uh, so it's not just protecting the body from molestation, but protecting the body from ritual cannibals. So, hmm. yeah. Dorcas. Uh, well, uh, Severian. Uh, I want to say on Severian a little bit. Yeah. Um, Continue. The fact that he, he is not untouched by the killing here. He, he performs the execution admirably and, and to the letter, and then he goes and throws up afterward. He doesn't yep. tell you right away that he did that, but he I, admits I, yeah, it later in the chapter. Right yeah, Like, Dorcas mentions it. Severian doesn't say outright, oh, I went and got sick. Dorcas is like, I saw how you were ill after the, you know. And Which makes me think, though, because you had interpreted earlier that Severian may have been the one to pen the actual order for Thecla's torture. Or her death, yeah, sorry. But... If he had been callous enough to do that, could he have been naive enough or innocent enough to throw up from regret of his actions here simply because he was the one to do the physical act? Yeah, certainly a possibility. Mm. Now, it's I, so I can't remember interesting if, to consider. I can't remember. I think I said I didn't want to say what I what my theory is about the torture orders until the end of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna. I, I'm I think gonna hold I recall you that. saying that too. Yeah. yeah, like you had reserved absolute final opinion on that until we finished these episodes yeah um Mm. but yeah there if you subscribe to the theory that severian forged the orders for her excruciation yeah it it shows like you know another layer of almost you know uh hypocrisy with him that he's able and and callous enough to sent her on a path to certain destruction uh, via the revolutionary. But when he has to get his own hands dirty, he's he, his body physically revolts against him. Mm. But, but yeah, with Dorcas though. So Dorcas, she still is having trouble with her memory. Mm-hmm. But she does say that she is certain she's not a virgin. And that is in the lead up to her just saying like, yes, let's have sex. Of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I don't, hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I don't know what it is. I'm, 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 
I'm coming to absolutely adore Dorcas, but I feel as if somehow, the, in the manner in which Wolf is writing her, like, I'm slowly, like, as a reader, somehow falling in love with this poor girl. She's so endearing. The mm. way that she's just inexplicably so devoted to Severian, how she's there for him after the duel to take care of him in his whatever twilight fugue state that is. The moment when he sees her asleep, he tries to take back Terminus Est. She like just like murmurs and she like, no, no, no. She denies it and she she pulls it closer, you know, like. So I'm know. curious, do you really think it's inexplicable that she's so attached to him? Well, she says that uh, she loves him. Uh, there's this whole thing about... Like, I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, apparently, she uh, she has loved him for a long time, and I feel like this encounter with the old man searching for Dorcas is somehow tied with Severian in that he's getting a glimpse of maybe his future. Not exactly in this old man but like, I, I don't know there's some time <laughs> wonkiness happening here i don't have all the pieces or perhaps i do have all the pieces but i can't see how they all fit together it's pissing me off but with dorcas uh, see to me it this makes a, a lot of I'm sense you know because she has okay. been untethered from her own past she has no memory she has right she has she no there. direction in, in life and severian provides a source of gravity for her she she Finds in Severian a rock, you know, right. someone a to give her direction and to care for her again. And and in that sense, I think it makes all the sense in the world that she's attached to him, that she's devoted to him. But there's this whole thing where she proclaims for her love for him so quickly. This was in our last episode, I believe. And I'm just... There's some connection here that we don't know yet. Some some chronological wonkiness that, that has yet to be explained. I honestly think that could be. Let, let, let's call that a prediction. Okay. Okay. They are connected in the future, and because of that, they are really experiencing a lot of weirdness right now. All right. So prediction noted. Yes. Uh, as far as Dorcas goes, uh, that's about it. Uh, Severian Dorcas. We've talked about Agilus and Agia. Um, yeah, I don't have any other Heather, characters to talk about. I just want to say uh, Heather's a weird well, dude, man. He's a weird dude. Heather is I, a he weird dude. He confused me so much. But he is the dude whose words I want to read more than anybody else thus far. <laughs> There's some sort of quirk there that I feel like Gene Wolfe could not have just done as a side on that one day he was feeling inspired this feels something this feels like something very deliberate and i want to interpret all of it so all of uh, it Every you're gonna get a chance word. in a couple of minutes here because uh as a little spoiler his monologue is my favorite is my passage of the week okay it, it hold on is it part of mine as well what is my passage of the week here nope it's not go ahead Continue yeah. with your point. Uh, well, well. So I was going to say, do do you have any more miscellaneous points, or shall we go no, into I our don't. favorite passages? Okay, we can go straight into the favorite passages of the week. Absolutely. All right. So mine, as I said, is is Heather, and I'm I'm tempted to read this whole thing because it is just so incredible. 
Mine no, is very long too, so master, very well made. When I was on the Quasar, I had a paracoita, a doll, you see, a genicon. So beautiful with her great pupils as dark as wells. Her uh, irises, purple like asters or pansies blooming in summer. Master, whole beds of them, I thought, had be- been gathered to make those eyes, that flesh that always felt sun-warmed. Where is she now, my scopolagna, my poppet? Let ho- ho- hooks be buried in the hands that took her. Crush them, master, beneath stones. Where has she gone from the lemonwood box I made for her, where she never slept at all, for she lay with me all night, not in the box, the lemonwood box where she waited all day, watch and watch, master, smiling when I laid her in so she might smile when I drew her out. How soft her hands were, her little hands, like doves. She might have flown with them about the cabin had she not chosen instead to lie with me. Wind their guts about your windlass, stuff their eyes into their mouths. Unman them, shave them clean below so their doxies may not know them, their lemons may rebuke them. Leave them to the brazen laughter of the brazen mouths of strumpets. Work your will upon those guilty. Where was their mercy on the innocent? When did they tremble? When weep? What kind of men could do as they have done? Thieves, false friends, betrayers, bad shipmates, no shipmates, murderers and kidnappers. Without you, where are their nightmares? Where are their restitutions so long promised? Where are their chains, fetters, manacles, and kangs? Where are their abassinations that shall leave them blind? Where are the defenestrations that shall break their bones? Where is the estrapade that shall grind their joints? Where is she, the beloved whom I lost? And then he just ends it right there. He ends the scene. It is... It's like... It's like Smeagol made an account on OnlyFans. It is hypnotic. (laughs) It's hypnotic. There is such momentum to this rant, this mad rambling. To the letter, it's like, I want to hear... It's another another example like the description of Dr. Talos. This is, I think, one of the most brilliant passages I've ever read. There is no other writer who could have written this. Like, it's, again... The the mind to even think about trying to write a character like this, to, to even try to write a a bit of dialogue like this, and then and then to treat it with just dropping the mic and not acknowledging it. Yeah, yeah. To not acknowledge it, <laughs> to it's, not make Severian stop in this moment and go, "Wow, that was extra like exceptionally weird." Wow, this guy must have an interesting past. He just nope. Yeah, it just cuts there. from that on. to Dorcas had found Page a break. daisy for her hair. Page break, you know? time to go on. The, you take of that what you will, good reader. That but, is... but it's easy. Again, this is going back to one of the things I said on a previous episode where Wolf hides important clues to the, the puzzle of the world and the story in text that overwhelms the reader. So you get distracted by this gigantic rambling monologue and all of these huge words and in all of that you might miss now obviously we've talked about this already but for a new reader who maybe hasn't realized yet that this is science fiction you may miss or forget that the very first line was when i was on the quasar quasar that sure sounds like a spaceship (sighs) Hmm. I, i just i hear quasar i think radioactive you know pulsing astronomical object 
<laughs> I, but I but it's else. Quasar but it's is italicized. It's cap, yeah, yeah, it's true, and it's an, it's, it's very it's clearly the Q. name of a ship because he yeah, also yeah. talks about it's a how he he talks about how these people stole his doll, and he says they're bad shipmates. <gasps> he, bro, he said shipmates though. Yes. Oh shit. You just made me done step up out of my chair and walk across the room. So there are these hints hidden in this insane rant that, again, give us clues. This is science fiction. He is talking about a ship, yes, but a spaceship called the Quasar. He's not talking about a, a sail sailing ship like a, you know, a galleon or something. He's talking about a literal ship that will go between the planets. Like... It's oh my goodness! It's just genius. This whole thing is genius. It's mad genius, oh but it's God. genius. It's mad genius, especially for a character so appropriately like Heather. Yeah, clearly Heather? insane. Heather, oh my God! Yeah. So, so uh, what is what is your passage this week? This is Severian considering what it means to kill Agilus. Unless the Chiliarch decided then to grant clemency, tomorrow I would take Agilus's life. No one can say what that means. The body is a colony of cells. I used to think of our oubliette when Master Palaemon said that. Divided into two major parts, it perishes, but there is no reason to mourn the destruction of a colony of cells. Such a colony dies each time a loaf of bread goes into the oven. If a man is no more than such a colony, a man is nothing. But we know instinctively that a man is more. What happens then to the part that is more? It may be that it perishes as well, though more slowly. There are a great many haunted buildings, tunnels, and bridges, yet I have heard that in those cases in which the spirit is that of a human being and not an elemental, its appearances grow less and less frequent and at last cease. Historiographers say that in the remote past, men knew only this one world of earth and had no fear of such beasts as were on it then and traveled freely from this continent to the, to the north. But no one has ever seen the ghosts of such men. It may be that it perishes at once or that it wanders along the constellations. This earth surely is less than a village in the immensity of the universe. And if a man leaves, oh, sorry, lives in a village and his neighbors burn down his house, he leaves the place if he does not die in it. But then we must ask how he came. Ruminating yeah. on that. In that moment was such a beautiful, such a perfect, appropriate in-depth examination in Severian's character, the fact that yeah. he's still capable of considering this as he performs this kind of act is what... It's, it's the entire reason I have not written him off yet. It's, and so. and on, a, on a higher level of, of kind of analysis, this is another reason that Wolf is among my favorites. He just... Every once in a while, he hits you with something so profound that stops you in your tracks. And you're not ready for it. Because what are you in this moment doing? You're, you're with Severian considering the fact that he's killed Agilus. And that 
all of this has led to this moment and he's performing this duty as of rote. He's being paid for this. He's literally being paid for this. Yeah. And yet he stops to consider this on this, on this insanely philosophical, almost like empathetically touching level. I don't know. Yep. It's very well done. It's so complex. Okay. Well, before we get mm. into the final draft, I'm going to leave you with one more quote. And okay, I'm not going to okay. explain it because we're going to talk about it okay. next week. You were... Okay. All right. Hanging over the city like a flying mountain in a dream was an enormous building. A building with towers and buttresses and an arched roof. Crimson light poured from its windows. I tried to speak, to deny the miracle even as I saw it. But before I could frame a syllable, the building had vanished like a bubble in a fountain, leaving only a cascade of sparks. Okay. This is my last, I swear, this is on my phone on my Galaxy S22 Plus, my last note for this week. What the f*** with about 21 U's. He's surprised that he has the claw of the conciliator in his pocket, and he senses that there's some sort of vast attention on it, okay? He puts it away hurriedly, and then there's a floating building that appears above the... Or a floating fortress that appears in the sky, and it vanishes immediately in a cascade of sparks. What the fuck? That was my last one. So, I was also just kind of mm, flabbergasted by that. Yes. Yes. Also, a couple of small things I forgot to mention in miscellaneous. Lance Fire burning in his bulging coat. I want to talk about that next week. What the hell is this Lance Fire? And this also made mention of this invasion from the north that so many had died to resist. Mm-hmm. I had I don't know what the heck that invasion is. I haven't heard about that yet, unless I have, and I'm just forgetting about it. So many things happening mm-hmm. in the shadow of the torch. We're part seven on inking out loud into part eight. End of this episode. <sighs> Final draft. Let's get into it. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited for next yeah. week, man. But yes, final draft. What are you drinking, Rob? So for this week, um, I have been drinking a Canadian whiskey. This is Gibson's Filest. Uh, wow. Gibson's Finest Sterling. Um, it, it's like a $32 bottle. It's not, you know, incredible. Uh, it's, it's decent. Aged four years to provide a smooth flavor perfect for every mixing and such location that's not that honestly it, it tastes as bland as it sounds it's not <laughs> bad it's not bad at all but it's the blandest good I, i've ever had i think okay <laughs> so, okay how about you what are you sipping on there in colorado my good sir i oh, have been I sipping on uh fever tree elderflower tonic water fever uh, tree. which has These been one of my always. staples over the last uh, yeah. i don't know several months of not drinking very welcome uh, on inking out loud, but I have a beer to talk about. Mm. Uh, I this is a beer that I will admit I do not have with me. I do not have on me. It is, um, as far as I know, uh, not possible for me to get uh, in Colorado. I would have to go out to California. Uh, this is from Russian River Brewing Company. Uh, it's a Belgian IPA. Uh, let's see, does it have an ABV listed? Uh, 6.5%. It does. Um, nice. This is nice. so Russian River. I believe I've brought on maybe one beer from them before, but they're kind of 
uh, well, they're famous for two things. Uh, one, they've they have some very sought after IPAs, um, Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger. Uh, this is not one of those, uh, but a lot of their beers are Asians. Uh, their most commonly accessible uh, specialty beers are Consecration and Supplication. They're both sour ales uh, in recent years. Temptation and um, Sanctification and Intinction. Every single one of those names. Yeah, oh have all made their way out. But this one, uh, uh, this, this is one of Rob's words this week. This beer is called oh. Defenestration. Ah, uh, oh my God. The mind is blown. Yep. Once again. Yeah, so it, I, was, I was a little surprised that you said you, you hadn't heard of defenestration before because I feel like it. this word kind of got like you a, know what? a vague like internet popularity a few years back where people discovered it and like it became almost a meme. Uh, but but yeah, it is a super fun word and... And in a really screwed up way, it is kind of amusing that like it means to like execute someone by throwing them out a window. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I'm not going to lie. There were, like there are several moments now every week where I'm I'm writing down a word that I don't know yet, and I'm thinking, oh crap, did I actually learn this word sometime in the last three years? And I just I'm forgetting it again. <laughs> so this was definitely one of those words. Yeah, this one in particular. Definitely gained some notoriety when game of thrones started because uh bran is defenestrated he is at the beginning of episode one literally episode one yeah so child defenestration occurs (laughs) in game of thrones but yeah that's why we love it so i think why we love it yeah yeah we love it for the the, (laughs) that is a hot take incestuous twins just like in this book hey that's right yeah, Gene Wolfe did the incestuous twins and defenestration before it was cool. Yeah. That's right. This is the hipster take on making out loud right here. Gene Wolfe did it before it was cool. Suck it. Oh, man. George R.R. R. Martin. But yeah, so uh, this has been episode 180 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Yeah. Next up, actually, I need to double check what's next. Right, we're finishing Shadow of the Torturer. We are doing chapters 32 through 36. Next up. Oh man, we're finishing Shadow of the Torture. Yeah, the it, book's done already. It, like I remember looking at the the schedule when we first you know laid this out, and I'm like, man, it looks like we're gonna be, it's gonna take forever to do yeah. each book I in, have in the series. All of the and books then, in one file here, so I'm just like a, a a fifth of the way into it. So this this yeah. is blowing my mind. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and these these eight weeks are flying by. Um, but as always, if you want to support Inking Out Loud, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud and get access to tons of bonus content, uh, including those short stories and excerpts from novels and things, uh, original fiction written by Rob or myself. Uh, at this point, we have a lot, probably going on two years of two and a half years of content there. So, yeah, Something there's a like lot that. of stuff on there. Mostly supplemented by you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd say it's about two-thirds me, one-third Rob at this point. Something Um, like that. Yeah. But I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.